Hi, and welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and wellness podcast ran by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Oliver Ellis, and my pronouns are he, him. So it's been a while. It's been about a month since our last episode. Sorry about that. Things get busy. You know how life is. Um, But we're very excited to be back. Um, this episode, we have a special guest who I'll introduce in just a minute, but um, just a quick content warning. There is going to be a lot of talk around periods, menstruation, possibly kind of dysphoria that goes along with that. Um, so if that's not something you're you're down with listening to, feel free to skip out on this episode. Um, but if you are happy to keep going, I think it'll be a good one. So we're very happy you're here. Um, so yeah, I'll just go right into introducing our special guest. Well, Rosie, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Do you want to go for that now? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, hey, Oliver and Dan, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Uh, I'm Rosie. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and she, her, hers. And I am a first-year master's student studying community health education at the Colorado School of Public Health. Um, And my background is in human services. And right now in my program, I'm studying gender-exacerbated health disparities. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about menstruation. Um, (laughs) This is such a, I feel like, passion area for me, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I think this is going to be a really cool conversation. Awesome. So yeah, um, I think we wanted to start by just kind of going through the basics, like menstruation 101, like what do we feel like people need to know about menstruation as like a concept before we go into talking about like experiences and like the work you're doing and stuff like that. Um, So if you want to go for some of the basics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think to to start out, menstruation in general um, is essentially it typically occurs starting at age 10 or 11 with something called a menarche, which is like the first experience that someone has of getting their menstrual cycle. Um, And then once that begins, typically a cycle lasts like or occurs every 28 days with bleeding lasting for between three and five days. Um, And then typically menstruation will end at age 51. So this means that an individual will spend an average of around 40 years purchasing menstrual products while simultaneously ensuring that they have consistent access to a space to dispose of products and comfortably purchase products. Um, But menstruation in general is just kind of that normal vaginal bleeding that occurs as part of a monthly cycle for those with a uterus. That's a really good way of like conceptualizing it as well. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like you don't really think of like 40 years of all of this stuff to do with menstruation. Um, You know, it's a long time when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kind of a thing that I always see like written around is the kind of term like period stigma. And like, I think there's a lot of kind of confusion maybe about what that means exactly so do you want to kind of do another little kind of 101 introductory thing about just what like period stigma and stuff is just in general yeah thank you so much for bringing that up um and i think that brings up a cool point too of using the term like menstruation versus period um i think that for menstruation i believe there are like five thousand different like slang terms <laughs> for it um, <laughs> yeah i've read that being, the the most popular one and period stigma is essentially a broad term for the discrimination faced by people who menstruate. Um, And this can be demonstrated in various ways, either through kind of, I guess, like I had mentioned, like sort of euphemisms or kind of like slang terms for menstruation, um, like misinformation, myths or jokes around menstruation and that experience. Like, for example, um, I don't know, 
like asking someone if they are having a certain experience because they're hormonal or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think the biggest manifestation of period stigma is something called period poverty. Yeah. And then um, essentially period poverty is defined as a lack of access to menstrual products, education, hygiene facilities, waste management, or a combination of these. And it affects an estimated 500 million people globally. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I think something interesting about using the term like period versus menstruation that I've noticed at least is within conversations I've had around, I don't know, my friends, I guess other folks that are kind of in that like menstrual equity promotion field. um, It's sort of the gendered experience that is kind of implied when the term of period like is used, I guess, instead of menstruation or something else. Um, And I would love to know like your all's thoughts on that too, of like terminology that like you all grew up with, I guess, or that like the first terms that you heard or used to refer to menstruation um, and kind of what that looked like? That's a good question. I think for me, yeah, that is a good question. But like, I think for me, like period would be a term that you use kind of like with your friends and stuff. And then when I'd be in like a biology class or something like that, then they would kind of use menstruation and that kind of like more scientific kind of a word. But usually you'd just be like talking to friends like, oh, mom, a period, like this sucks. But like... Yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, if there's any other terms that I really heard for it. I'm not really sure. I don't really know how many terms people already use in the UK. Yeah, I'd be interested to know, like, the different, mm. like, um, UK versus <laughs> US yeah. slang terms. That was something we should have thought about beforehand. I'm not really sure if there's any UK ones I can think of. But, like, I mean, I, I kind of agree in that, like, period would be just sort of used amongst friends. But then mm. menstruation felt like a more kind of sciencey term. Um, but like, I, I definitely like people would talk kind of around it, oh, yeah. like, oh, it's like your time of the month, you know, things like this. And it's all, you know, and for the first period thing was always very like becoming mm-hmm. a woman, like, you know, it's all very gendered in that way. Um, but then I think menstruation is, yeah, definitely felt a bit more biological, not in like a good or a bad way. Just like, it felt sort of, it's informational. It's telling it as it is like, this is the sort of scientific process you're going through, which like, I think it's really good yeah, for people absolutely. to at least know the word, you know? Thank you so much for sharing your kind of thoughts and experiences around that. I totally agree. I feel like growing up, I definitely also heard the term period use most casually, like with my friends and whatnot. And then kind of getting further into the field, I've noticed there's definitely been that shift towards using like the term menstruation. Um, mm-hmm. And something else kind of as we're on the topic of like terminology and and what to use when talking about menstruation um, is the use of the word like hygiene products or like menstrual hygiene products. Mm. Um, and something interesting, mm. I just had a conversation about this with like a previous professor who kind of has like an interest in linguistics. And they had brought up that like using the term hygiene products can sometimes make a connection that menstruation is not like a hygienic process. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Um, And I'm sure we'll also get into this as the conversation unfolds. But I think like with menstruation, it's so interesting seeing the ways that it's marketed as kind of that gendered experience and how that is reinforced through language. Mm. Like, I don't know, like feminine hygiene products or at my university, some of the (laughs) like free dispensers um, before the stickers got switched out and said things like, (laughs) yeah, like feminine management or like panty shields and stuff. Um, And it's so interesting the ways that those things are linked. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in like UK supermarkets, they still have like, you know, like the 
the big signs are on like the ceiling and stuff, like the different aisles. I'm pretty sure most of them still say like mm. female hygiene or something like that. I was just going to ask, even like pads are called like sanitary napkins here, right? Like bringing back the idea yeah. of like cleanliness, which is interesting. Like how we talked about in like a, the STI episode and stuff where it's that kind of thing where people are like, oh no, don't worry, I'm clean. And like insinuating that people who are like diagnosed mm. with an STI or something are inherently in some way dirty. And it kind of goes into that kind of mm-hmm. idea where just like a normal bodily process like menstruation or something makes you dirty in a way and also that kind of like i'm just brainstorming but i'm just also thinking about like um (laughs) like a lot of people's like i've never had period sex because by the time i got to like having sex and stuff i was already on testosterone and like my period had stopped but like people's kind of really kind of their reaction to the idea of period sex as being like really disgusting and stuff like that which i find quite interesting which i feel like we should have written a question about but like you know (laughs) yeah definitely and to that point like I feel like um I've definitely had experiences where I've been like I guess like intimate with someone and I have like been on my menstrual cycle and then it's like stopped there's definitely a discomfort there which you know makes sense like if somebody's uncomfortable with that process like that's totally okay but I think it brings up that bigger conversation of why like what makes yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah or it's like that stereotype of even like generally like cis men not wanting to know anything about menstruation whatsoever or like not wanting to like buy their girlfriends tampons or you know it's it's stuff like that that like is seen as this kind of stereotype of like it's seen as something that is kind of gross and something that people don't want to have to deal with if it's not like themselves going through it absolutely and there's some like historical context too where i feel like that really manifested where when people were menstruating they would be like removed from other parts of the community which is interesting yeah i'm pretty sure that does still happen in some places of the world as well when i was reading about it the notes that i put Mm -hmm. on like the google docs is from like something else that i had to write and i was like reading about stuff like that and i was like god it's tough out here people menstruate (laughs) (laughs) it's a tough (laughs) world and i think that kind of as we're talking about it Period poverty and the consequences of it are not not connected to that, like in terms of seeing the educational experiences of people that menstruate that can be impacted by things like period poverty or menstrual Mm -hmm. inequity or this inability to access menstrual products. Um, So my research is like specifically around like students in the United States. And so through this, I found like a study called the state of the period, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) a report that's essentially conducted (laughs) annually by an organization called Period, which is kind of like the leading menstrual equity nonprofit org in the US, and then the like underwear company Thinks. And in 2021, as well as in 2019, they conducted the survey of about like a thousand menstruating students aged 13 to 19. And in the 2019 survey, they found that four in five students reported either missing class or knowing someone who had missed class or had their learning impacted in some way by not having menstrual products. Um, So when Mm -hmm. I think about like, you know, some of those contexts of having some of those consequences, I guess, of menstruation and this inability to to manage menstruation, um, I think about the ways that that also kind of manifests today and how it can put further barriers in place for people that do menstruate. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just, it's like so much more common than people think that it is i think it's just yeah it's something that we need to be talking about because you know it is everywhere because like i think when people think about period poverty and stuff they tend to think about countries that aren't kind of like 
these super well-developed ones like the America and the UK and stuff, but like I've definitely seen things, especially in the UK, where they like put like a tax on like period products and stuff. Um, and then people were obviously campaigning against that because like people were having to like, like there were reports of like children not going to school because they didn't have access to like pads or like tampons or anything like that. And they didn't want to like bleed through their uniform and stuff like that. And just like how much, like, I think people just think that these things don't impact like every single country, which I think is quite interesting because like, obviously it does because we're we're still in the trenches <laughs> like <laughs> yeah that's such a great point um i think that that can be kind of seen in a lot of the research that's available around menstrual inequity a lot of it is from like a global perspective so like going into to other i guess like one of the most popular statistics that's pulled from is from like the united nations and it's a statistic that like 1 in 10 global menstruating youth like struggles to access menstrual products. And a lot of that research focuses on spaces like outside of the US. And I think it's for that reason that you talked about of like this idea that, well, this doesn't happen like in the United States, even though it does potentially at higher Mm. rates um, or in other spaces Mm -hmm. too. It's this idea that like, I don't know. I, I don't know why, but I've found that a lot of research around menstrual equity exists from a global perspective and definitely further research needs to exist into how kind of like period poverty manifests in other spaces too. Yeah. It's the whole, like all the stuff. I mean, I feel like we talk about it every time on the podcast, but all these issues are ones that are stigmatized. And so Mm -hmm. people just aren't talking about them. And so people don't know it's an issue, you know, because if people were more open about it and happy to talk about menstruation, you know, I would like to think that things would be a bit different and, you know, hopefully we're headed in that direction, but you know, definitely not there yet. So our first kind of question is like, what's your experiences with menstruation and like menstrual products? So my experiences around menstruation and menstrual products, um, I mean, it it starts out pretty typical. So I began to menstruate at around age 11. I actually got, I remember when I first got my menstrual cycle in middle school, we used to do these stationary bikes. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) You remember? Oh yeah. yeah. We used to do these stationary bikes and that's just kind of where I got mine. (laughs) Oh no. In that process. And then I went to our gym teacher and kind of asked to go to the bathroom. And then I didn't, it's not that I didn't know essentially how to manage it. I was just so stressed by the experience that I remember just like using toilet paper to like manage it for the rest of the day. Um, And then when I was 13, I began to like experience these longer than average menstrual cycles. So as we kind of talked about, like the average person bleeds for between like three and five days during the cycle with a couple of those being heavy bleeding days. Um, And when I turned 13, I found myself bleeding for anywhere between 28 and 60 days. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. There was something, definitely something up there, but um, like something going on there, I guess. And that was pretty difficult to manage for a lot of reasons. I think that with menstruation also comes kind of a slew of sometimes like, I don't know, like depression or increased like hormonal imbalances or other things Mm. that kind of comes with that process too. Um, And additionally, like I come from like a single parent household. So my mom is a middle school teacher and like when I came to college, I was considered low income and kind of Pell Grant eligible for the FAFSA. And that just sort of made it even more stressful with having to 
manage my menstrual cycle for that long. Um, I remember it was kind of stressful going grocery shopping and sort of making that decision between like menstrual products and potentially other things that we needed. And the stress of Mm -hmm. kind of having such long menstrual cycles coupled with sort of that financial strain that it was putting on, you know, myself and my mom um, just made me feel awful about menstruation and about Mm -hmm. that topic in general. Um, Mm -hmm. And then kind of once I began like taking birth control pills, I found that like my cycle started to like mellow out, like, I, I did the the recommendation where you kind of like take the the pack of pills all the way through so that way you don't get your menstrual cycle. Um, and I found that that helped me manage it for a while until I eventually got an IUD when I started to experience these super long cycles again. Um, and at that point, I was kind of like, God, this is stressful. <laughs> Why is this happening? <laughs> um, this is so weird. Why is this? Why haven't I kind of explored this further? Why haven't I? you know, talked about this more in like doctor's offices spaces when I've gone. Um, and then I kind of started to discover it and realize that like I have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome and PCOS is essentially like an imbalance of hormones. And this causes Mm -hmm. your ovaries to become enlarged and it can grow kind of like tiny cysts on the outside that impacts your overall like hormonal balances. So for me, this manifests as like an overproduction of testosterone and thus that kind of contributed to those really long cycles. So I feel like up until I started to, to understand that and ways to sort of manage PCOS, like menstruation has been such a central part of my life because I had these really long cycles and this kind of financial stress around managing it. Mm. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it brings up so many good points about like menstruation isn't just like, there's just so many different things that come into it. Like it isn't just bleeding every month. Like there's all these different things that happen that people don't really talk about. Um, And yeah, like I, I guess my experiences like similarly kind of started around age 11 um, and I immediately was like not happy with that. Like I didn't like how people made a big deal of it. I didn't really get why some of my peers were like excited for their first periods because like, I mean, I didn't know I was trans at that point, but I had a very sort of instinctual negative response to it. Like I just wanted to not talk about it. You know, it wasn't really something I wanted to deal with. So I kind of just did, you know, the bare minimum, I guess, about it. Um, And I never had any huge issues with it, Um, just kind of the basic like cramps, like some irritability, not really feeling great about myself, Um, but you know, had a fairly like heavy flow that lasted generally like a full week, like about seven days. Um, And like, I never talked to a doctor about it. I never really wanted to answer any questions about any of that kind of thing, just because I was so like, not really in denial that it was happening, but just not wanting to kind of talk about it at all. Um, and it was definitely like one of the first things that I wanted to go away once I started testosterone. Like I was so excited for that to finally stop. Um, and I think it took about five or six months after I started testosterone for it to go away completely. Um, which means I, so I came out with strands during the summer before my last year of high school. Um, and then when school started, I was still having periods, but I was also using like the boys restroom. Um, so then there was a few months of me trying to like, navigate how to go to the bathroom and change pads and tampons and all this stuff like while being in the the men's restroom but didn't have like you know any bins or anything like that in the stalls so it was like a weird like 
take everything out, wrap things in tissue paper, wait until people are away, like go bury it in the bin outside. And it was just like, so, Mm. you know, such a stressful situation to be in. So I was very happy when that finished. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely felt like obviously being trans, there is this, you know, everything you're hearing about menstruation is from like a kind of feminine side of things, which obviously wasn't fun, but I think it was more just the physical sensation for me that was the worst part at that time. And just having to deal with that and like, I don't know, just having to constantly change pads and tampons and having to think about it all the time. And like, it definitely put me in a really bad headspace for that, you know, week out of every month. Mm. Yeah. I was like basically the same. Um, with like a lot of your experiences like I think mine started when I was like 12 I don't know but like around when like puberty and stuff started for me that's when I first started having those like something's Mm. fucking up like (laughs) I like I am not comfortable (laughs) like trans feelings um and like I remember my friends used to always say I was lucky because they had like relatively short cycles like they Mm. really didn't last that long but like they would make me feel like shit. Like it wasn't like anything where I was like, oh, I need to go. Like, cause I knew people who would like go on the pill and stuff because they had issues with their cycle. Kind of like what Rosie was talking about. Like mm-hmm. I knew some people who did that. Um, but then I started testosterone three years ago, I think three or four years ago. I can't remember. But, like, I first started on testosterone gel, and I think it took a couple months for my period to go away. And then there was one summer where I went to Brighton Pride, and I was, like, with my friends. I had my little little thing of testosterone gel that I had to put on every morning. And then, like, halfway through the trip, I was like, oh, I'm fucking out because, like, the bottle is opaque, and you don't know how much you ever have left. <laughs> um, and then it took a while to get back, and then I had to, like, do – I had to call up um and be like can i have a new referral and then like my gp surgery was like down in southampton i was back up at my parents place and they were like oh we're gonna have to like mail you the thing because testosterone is like a controlled substance that we can't send it to your pharmacy like electronically so that took a couple days and then it took a couple days for my pharmacy to order it in for me and like by the time that had all happened i finally got my testosterone back like my period had started again and it was quite like distressing for me because it was like something I hadn't had really had to experience for like, I think maybe at that time, like six months or something. Um, and it was quite like distressing. Cause like it was something that I really didn't want to be happening to my body. And it kind of felt like a bit of a betrayal. Mm. Um, just cause it was like one of those things where like you were saying all of it, where it's been so gendered that it just makes me feel really dysphoric Mm because people always like act like it's like a girl thing even though it's like i know logically and like if i was like talking myself down from like some anxiety feeling or something about it like i would know logically like that's not true but then like those kind of societal things are so like pervasive that you would still be like oh but what if it's true like Mm -hmm. what if i don't know i don't know but like it was just one of those things where it was like so uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. and like thankfully after that i just went on libido so i don't have to worry about it and i just get an injection in the ass every three months so it's <laughs> fine but yeah i don't think i've had a very remarkable menstruation experience <laughs> though before that it was pretty fucking average <laughs> yeah that's like it's interesting the like 
I mean, I totally relate to all the sort of stuff that you were mentioning around the dysphoria around it and like it being so gendered. And like, I think it led to like, I feel like there were all these sort of internalized, like, I don't know, like, I remember thinking things about menstruation, like thinking it was so gross and it's this horrible thing. And like, you know, I don't think that way now, obviously, like I recognize that it's a natural part of life that a lot of people go through. But I think sometimes when you feel so negatively about something, it can impact like how you actually view it as well, which is which is a shame because like I look back and I'm like, oh, I didn't need to be having those negative thoughts about it. But it's that kind of whole cycle of like, you know, bad self-image because of this thing. And then you hate that thing because of it. And it just it's interesting how it kind of goes around and it takes a bit of I don't know, it takes some time to step back to actually like realize like, oh, menstruation is not a bad thing. Like it is just a thing that happens. It is like it's neutral, you know, it doesn't have to be good or bad. Mm, Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much for sharing your experiences around that. Um, I think that it's so interesting, like, the ways that we're first kind of taught about menstruation, and how that can Mm. sort of impact like our experiences and overall views of it. Like, I feel like even um, if you maybe don't receive a ton of education around menstruation, like before you experience your menstrual cycle, whether it be because you have like, like a, like a sexual health policy that doesn't talk about it or whether like, you know, the people that you grew up with don't really talk about it. I feel like some of the first messaging that you can receive around menstruation is through like marketing of menstrual products and kind of like what you had mentioned, Dan, of like, even in the supermarket of like products being underneath like signs that are like, Oh, Mm -hmm. female hygiene products Mm -hmm. here. Um, and I will say that on a lot of menstrual products in the U S um, like the actual, like packaging sleeves themselves like for example a tampon like the plastic part it comes in like at least the the center that I work at we purchased from a company called Always and their like branding all has like it's it's very girl boss like it's very like, <laughs> oh, yeah. hashtag like a girl or like literally <laughs> has the female symbol on it and so it's so interesting the ways that I feel like um the marketing industry continues to gender menstruation and mm-hmm. it just makes me wonder like why <laughs> when yeah. it started or what that looks like it seems like it would be more of a hassle for them what kind of system does that uphold i guess mm-hmm. and it, i think that that kind of bleeds over then it bleeds over <laughs> um like larger conversations around menstruation and menstrual equity i think that a lot of folks that are working to like make menstruation feel like a more inclusive accessible experience while also promoting access to menstrual products also have to like dig through a lot of their own shit and lessons that they've learned I guess around menstruation being that gendered experience like Mm -hmm. I feel like I've Mm. noticed that a lot of well-meaning people I guess that want to provide products also like on the other hand maybe inadvertently but still consequently um like uphold this system that just makes yeah. menstrual products further uncomfortable for non-cis people to mm-hmm. access. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I totally get that. And I, I see what you mean of like, it, a lot of times it does come from a good place of being like, oh, people used to think of menstruation as this negative thing. We should make it good. Like girl boss, like it's amazing. It's empowering. It's all this stuff. So like, I can see how that they think is quite a positive thing, but then obviously you're leaving out a lot of people who menstruate who don't identify as a woman or as a girl boss. <laughs> so like, yeah. you know, it, it yeah, it, it's, I, I see the side of like where they're coming from, but it just isn't hitting everyone it needs to hit. Yeah, mm. exactly. Exactly. It's very reminiscent of, I feel like, um, a lot of critiques of kind of movements that can be associated with like women's health and whatnot mm. of how it's like, 
not that <laughs> like it's yeah <laughs> it's not like it's just not uh it's an issue that like goes kind of beyond that gender binary and also like is kind of reminiscent I feel like of maybe some earlier discourses of like even like second wave feminism like mm-hmm. first wave of like really excluding a lot of groups yeah um, and inadvertently only promoting access for one type of person mm-hmm. well it's just reminding me of like I always see those adverts where I think it's from like always or something where it's like some athlete or something like going surfing and she's like my period won't stop me and i'm like (laughs) that's like great for you bestie but it's also like what about the people where like they're in so much pain that they like Mm -hmm. can't do those things and like i don't know like sometimes it just kind of comes across to me like a little bit like oh you should like toughen up and like just get Mm -hmm. on with it even if you're in like physical agony because your like uterus is cramping so hard Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then also like when you were talking about packaging, it reminded me of like I think it was like right before I went on testosterone. Like it was still like in like the twenty tens. I can't remember when, but I think it was always or like one of those companies like that. They had like these really cute little like pad tins, and like I remember I got a packet just because it came with a tin that had like little cartoons of like people of all genders on it and it said something like everyone like anyone could menstruate or like something like that i can't remember what it was exactly i've got it somewhere in my room but i was like oh that's like really cute because i felt like it was for the time especially like quite progressive because i feel like i never really see much stuff like that anymore yeah that's so cool i would like i wish there had been stuff like that when i was still menstruating you know because like i think that would have been such a huge benefit but like yeah i mean i think only recently i've seen stuff like that you know on social media and and all that kind of thing because there are some really great companies who are making it you know clear that everyone regardless of gender you know like can use these products and you know, I, I see that stuff happening now, but I, I didn't at all when I was like a teenager. Yeah. Mm. So kind of going off that, um, what made you interested in like inclusivity and like menstrual equity practices? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so I, hmm, where to begin? <laughs> I'm going to take a second to think. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, okay. So like I have been kind of exploring my own experience with identifying I guess like along the the gender spectrum if you will mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> of the, the gender binary mm-hmm. um and I here's kind of where I've landed now um I personally identify like as as non-binary and through my like research I guess with menstrual equity I've really struggled to find um like data and research that looks at experiences of like non-cis women and menstruation yeah. mm-hmm. um and I think that exploring my own kind of journey through gender at the same time as being in this like free menstrual product promotion field has been really interesting to engage with. I feel like, um, like while menstrual equity and menstrual inequity itself, like it's not necessarily a new issue, right? Like people have struggled to access menstrual products since menstruation has began or have had to find ways to manage menstruation. Um, And kind of like, as I've engaged with research and programming around period poverty, like kind of like what we were talking about, I've just noticed that people that are maybe like well-meaning, like researchers that are trying to find data to support movements like this um, also do really maybe inadvertently, but still so like reinforce 
a system that does not allow like non-cisgender people to exist comfortably um, by kind of centering the experiences and making products like accessible for everyone. Um, I think like an example of this is like many free product programs while wanting to promote gender equity and sort of level out that educational playing field, like inadvertently reinforce a system that further kind of ostracizes like non-cis people that menstruate by only offering products in women's bathrooms or like you had mentioned Oliver like mm. not having like bins to throw products away in and all stalls um and I think that like that dichotomy of exploring my own journey through gender and also like being part of this field that has danger to like really inadvertently reinforce kind of this this system that doesn't make accessing menstrual products safe or comfortable um, has been really interesting and has just made me feel really curious about why that is, how to like recenter the experiences of, I feel like, non-cis people in sort of the menstrual equity movement and has also just kind of like invigorated this desire to learn more about it, ways to help, um, ways that feel like to make accessing products and disposing of products feel comfortable and safe for everyone. Um, I think that kind of just being in the field and also exploring my own journey through gender has really, I guess, like encouraged me to want to promote inclusivity and menstrual equity practices. Yeah, that that's so cool to hear. And I think it's so important that like, you know, people like you are bringing their own personal life experiences into the field. Like, I think that's something that uh, I mean, so many fields lack because everyone's focused mm. on like, I don't know, like being impartial and unbiased and there's all these things, but then it's like, well, no, like lived experience is just so important. Like this is what we should be listening to. This is what is going to like inform good services. And so, it, yeah, it's great to hear that like you're going along that journey and kind of finding it. Yeah. Just invigorating to like be learning about all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, also really wanting to like engage in for part of the like project Emmy that kind of I've been working on and started a couple of years back to promote free menstrual products. Like such a big part of that too, is also really, really gaining feedback and experiences of anybody who's willing to give it around mm. menstruation. I feel like menstruation is such a, it's not a one size fits all experience. And so I think the more that we can learn about everybody's experience with menstruation, maybe barriers that it have existed in people's experiences with accessing menstrual products or feeling comfortable in their experience of menstruation, like the more we can actually try to destigmatize menstruation and create programs, policy systems that sort of eliminate that menstrual inequity piece. But that only comes through listening to other people's experiences and actually valuing what is said in there and putting that at the forefront of any programs or initiatives that are trying to help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like I really agree. Like a lot of the stuff you're saying I, I can kind of mirror with my own experience with the kind of like academic stuff that I do where I literally just kind of came up this frustration of like there is absolutely nothing to do with like sexual like pleasure and stuff in like trans or like non-binary people and I was just like I guess I've got to do it <laughs> so like I definitely can relate with that and I think it's like really important work that you're doing and like you're so like eloquent about it like you really like <laughs> know what you're talking about and I'm like damn yeah very impressive <laughs> thank you so much I was so nervous for this podcast I like my friend slept over last night so that I could like so we could hang out and watch Stranger Things and also <laughs> um, so that I could like not practice but just talk about it so thank you so much I appreciate that I feel like um even I sometimes still I mean not sometimes like menstruation was just such a deeply stigmatized topic. I feel like 
for me growing up. Um, and for a lot of people that like talking about it in these spaces still feels like, okay, like I'm hiding and my mom's just around the corner and not that it would be mm. a bad thing, <laughs> yeah. to her, but that it would be uncomfortable which is interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because like I I totally get that and that like whenever I, you know, didn't talk about anything whether it was being trans or whether it was like menstruation or anything like that, it was never that like I felt like something bad was going to happen if I did talk about it. It was that feeling of discomfort that I knew was going to happen, you know, and it felt like the lesser of two evils would was just to to be quiet and spare yourself that discomfort, which is totally not, you know, it's mm. not actually the lesser of two evils, but that's what it feels like it when you're when they're in that moment and when the topic is so stigmatized. Yeah, and it's just like how that kind of cycle of shame works, basically, where mm. like if you're shamed into like feeling uncomfortable about like a bodily process or something like sex or menstruation or something like that, and then if you feel like you can't talk about it or like the only way that people ever do talk about it is in like a negative way, then it just like really reinforces that stigma and then mm-hmm. like that stigma turns into that shame and it just kind of like goes on and on so like it's really important i think to like just have like really open conversations especially with like people of all backgrounds and stuff mm-hmm. to try and like open it up and i guess like break that cycle a bit and just be like it's a normal thing it happens to like half of the population mm-hmm. on this planet like yeah there's nothing really inherently wrong for like just going through this but yeah. God, yeah, that's such a great point. And I think when we like kind of connecting back to our the topic of sort of inclusivity and menstrual equity practices, it's so I feel like menstruation is sort of and I'm sure you feel this with like sexual health too. It's like that double stigmatized piece where it's like on the one hand you're bringing up like menstruation which is already a topic that could be uncomfortable for menstruating people and non-menstruating people to engage with for whatever reason. And at the same time, it's so important to center that conversation around like experiences of all people that menstruate and I think that like I've noticed at least in my work when I've engaged with people who are maybe in more positions of influence like who can actually inform policy and whatnot like in school systems to promote free products um everybody's on board with like the free menstrual products and like oh my god yeah we don't want people that menstruate to miss school like yeah I'm on board with that but when it's brought up of like okay cool but like how will menstrual products become available in men's restrooms and gender neutral restrooms and like in the nurse's office in all spaces. um, That's when like, I've noticed the other party will kind of harden up and like not Mm. feel like there's like a wall there. Like it's been like a, like, okay, you got me until there, Um, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting. And I feel like makes it so hard because it's that, yeah, like double stigmatized process of, of like engaging in a conversation that can already feel uncomfortable. And then, okay, wait, but there's so much more to it. And like, in order to address this thing and, and menstruation and to make menstrual equity practices like inclusive, you have to do that. Like you have to like really walk the walk and like yeah. make sure products are accessible <laughs> everywhere. But for some reason, there's such a disconnect um, between that and policy and other things that can actually long-term systemically reinforce uh, a system that is equitable for menstruators. Um, it, it's so weird how stigma plays a role in this conversation so heavily yeah Mm. kind of going off of that you mentioned a couple of different things that you've been part of um do you want to talk through kind of what your journey within the field has been like like what sort of projects you've been working on um yeah people you've talked to about this like all that kind of practical stuff that you've been doing that i see on instagram sometimes and i'm very very impressed with (laughs) 
Yes, thank you so much for asking. That is such a great question. Um, so my experience with this field really started in sexual health. Um, I started as a sexual health peer educator at this place called the Center for Peer Education at my university, gosh, in 2018 or 19, but I served in that role for about three years. Um, and through that experience, I really learned a lot about different sexual health topics. I worked with a lot of students that like had various STIs or just had questions about sexual health in general. And through that, had a lot of conversations about menstruation. Um, from kind of some of those experiences that I had shared earlier, menstruation's been like a really central part of my life for a long time, whether it be managing menstruation, accessing menstrual products. Um, I don't know. It's just been a really central part of my life. And so I visited another college campus in Colorado and I went into one of their bathrooms and I noticed that they had free menstrual products. And then something just clicked for me. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I'm so inspired by this university. Um, this needs to exist at my university. And so I tried to kind of find different avenues to be able to promote free menstrual products at my university, which is the University of Northern Colorado. And I found something called the NASPA Peer Education Leadership Project. So essentially, this is like a 10-month-long grant-received project where you would uh, submit a rationale, and if it were accepted, they would partially fund your project. But mostly, you would have the backing of this company called NASPA, which is like huge in higher ed. Um, so I applied and then was like one of five programs selected to get it. So I had the support of NASPA. And throughout these 10 months, um, I just created a full plan for promoting free menstrual products at my university, converting dispensers as well as access to bulk products and education were the things that I felt the most strongly about. And I think that that really ties into the definition of menstrual equity, um, which is a term that was coined by Jennifer Weiss-Wolf in a book called Periods Gone Public. And in that definition, she more speaks to legislation, but really promotes and highlights the affordability, accessibility, and menstrual products as vital parts of menstrual equity. So I knew that I really wanted to promote that in whatever project capacity I could now through this peer education leadership project. Um, and I put together this program plan, then COVID hit <laughs> and things changed a little bit. But essentially, I assembled a team at my university of different stakeholders. So the first people that I engaged in this initiative was myself, the Center for Peer Education that I worked at, um, the Center for Women's and Gender Equity, which is where I now work as a graduate assistant and continue to work on this project, um, UNC's facilities and custodial services, because if we were going to do anything with dispensers and inserting bins in different spaces, they needed to be part of that. Um, student Senex, I was like, okay, we should try to really have a policy around this um, to ensure that there's longevity with this project. And then the final stakeholder for this project um, has been a sustainability group on my campus called Student Leaf. And collaboratively, we all worked on converting the dispensers. So whether that be through advocacy, funding, um, just like manpower, uh, these are kind of all the players that have been involved. And as of today, like almost all the dispensers on UNC's campus have been converted from a cost system to a free system with plans to continue to put in dispensers and wastebaskets in different spaces. Um, and that's definitely been a really cool part of the project is creating that access for emergency situations. However, I think something that some menstrual equity practices maybe miss in, in school settings is that uh, like menstruation occurs outside of school, right? So like students and people that exist in different spaces where free menstrual products are also need menstrual products to take home kind of access to those bulk products 
And so another part of this project, which is essentially um, at this point called Project ME, Project Menstrual Equity, um, is that all students at UNC can access free menstrual products in bulk. It's like a free customizable resource. Students can order as many products as they want, as frequently as they want. Um, and we can deliver them to their residence halls once a week. They can pick those products up from the center or we can mail them to an off-campus residence. And all these have options to like put whatever name, address feels best. I think like safety and comfortability has been such an important and evolving part of this bulk menstrual product pack process. Um, and so those are really the two main ways that Project Me or Project ME like promotes access to menstrual products is through the dispensers and converting those. And then through this other piece of like free bulk menstrual product packs called me packs. Um, and that's kind of this journey that I've been on with promoting access to menstrual products. I think like the latter part really comes from that like passion to create access outside of just dispensers. And also when COVID hit, um, do you all remember, I, did it happen by you where like menstrual product or not menstrual products, but like toilet paper was being bought up really quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah. yeah. Everything was like so hard to find. Yes. Well, the same thing happened with menstrual products. Um, and so with that too, like just like in that context, like, I don't know. I felt like bulk products felt way more timely and important than the dispensers. So that's kind of where that priority happened. And I would just order products to my apartment. I would like, I like created this little Google form, like sent it out to all my friends and was like, send this to your friends. Like, let's try to just like spread the word. Um, and I would like package menstrual products once a week and then walk down to the res halls. And this was like pre-vaccine deep quarantine. So I would like triple mask up and just like sanitize all the products like I, ha I had this whole system and then I would drop them off to the different residence halls um, to ensure that folks that were living on res halls like had access to these menstrual products because a lot of times like universities maybe they have a little grocery store or something but the products there there's not a wide variety and they're super expensive so I was mm. like okay how can we make sure that everyone has access to what they need and in order to be successful in this community that I'm in yeah, That's I mean, so I, it, cool. yeah, it's so cool. It's such amazing work and definitely like filling a need that was really there. Like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's always like inspiring to see people who like see an issue and actually like just do something to, to solve it. And it sounds like that's, that's pretty much what you've been doing, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Like, thank you so much for listening <laughs> and for asking. I feel like this uh, project has been so big that sometimes it's hard to like talk about because I feel like there's so many evolving parts of it. But another thing I wanted to mention with this too, like, is just the value and importance of like collective capacity, community mm -hmm. building. Um, this project would not have happened by any means at all without the support of all these other people who also believe in, in creating access to menstrual equity and access to products like the Center for Women's and Gender Equity that I work at now has really taken on this project as part of their daily operations, and it just wouldn't be possible without them. So there are so many people to thank and to feel gratitude for in this process. Um, and definitely one of those is like, her name is Grace Turner, and she at the time was a prevention coordinator at UNC, and she supported me in creating a needs assessment. So she developed like, essentially, a survey for all UNC students that like asked questions around barriers to accessing menstrual products to like gain a better understanding of the experiences of people that menstruate on this campus, as well as different 
barrier pieces like safety, transportation, um, comfort in accessing products, uh, like financial reasons, other things. So that way we could really try to tailor this initiative to the needs of our campus. So that is such a huge part of this too. And I feel like a lot of health interventions really benefit from having a needs assessment because it really helps you to support your community. Yeah, totally. That That's such a good point. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and kind of where the project is at now, uh, as I mentioned, it, it is primarily housed in the Center for Women's and Gender Equity at UNC. It's like a, a full campus resource. So even throughout the summer, UNC students can order a me pack and we can mail it to them regardless of where they live for free. Um, they can also pick up products from the center. And we're really trying to focus on creating that bulk resource um, forever, ideally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And something exciting is that we invited like, or we were, I guess, reached out to by a donor this past year. So we've made a switch over into being able to offer like 100% like organic, like cotton um, pads and tampons, as well as like overnight products. And um, part of the reason of wanting to invite the sustainability group into the space was because I just feel like sustainability is also such an important part of menstrual products and menstrual equity practices um, from both that lens of like environmental sustainability and longevity. So like wanting to ensure that like menstrual equity practices are actually helpful in the long run, because there's a lot of like use of disposable products and whatnot, which, um, you know, makes sense. Sometimes that's the easiest way to manage products. But I really wanted to like get that perspective of people who have that long term investment in sustainability. So we also do offer like menstrual cups, as well as like menstrual cup care kits, and then kind of instructions on how to, to like care for those products. Um, that being said, I know like menstrual equity practices are super nuanced when it comes to sustainability. Like there can be conversation around like, oh, we'll just provide somebody with a menstrual cup or a washable pad, and then they won't need disposable products and the problem is fixed. But then it brings in all these other conversations around housing and ability to like clean your products and all that stuff. So mm, yeah, absolutely. we like to offer a, a good variety of both. Yeah, that's like interesting. So I was going to ask you about the environmental thing later on anyway, because it came to me like halfway through this podcast <laughs> recording, because like I had to do a bunch of research about different products as well for like that thing that I did that I have all these notes for. Um, and like when you were saying like the reusable pads and stuff, I was like everything that I was reading about, it was like so, it sounded so annoying because it's like you had like one pad that you'd wear in the day or like you'd mm -hmm. switch them out and then like you'd have to soak them overnight and then you'd have to clean them in the morning, like in the washing machine or something. And then you'd have to make sure you have enough that you can wear them the next day. And I was like, that just doesn't sound like if someone's like struggling with like housing or they don't have like if they don't have enough money to like run the washing machine that often or something or to like they don't have the resources to do that then that isn't very sustainable for them mm -hmm. even if it is more like environmentally conscious or whatever but yeah yeah i was just gonna like i was gonna ask you about the menstrual products thing anyway so it's good that it came up anyway <laughs> yes i'm so glad and god that's such a great point in your research of washable pads like i feel like they are presented by different kind of companies that create these products as the solution, but it's only the mm -hmm. solution for one type of person that has access mm -hmm. to washing machines, to places to store products, to places to like boil menstrual cups and to clean them. Like I know that there's a lot of, there was a lot of controversy around when menstrual cups are first introduced. And I think there was a company that like did the <laughs> kind of like Tom shoes or whatever, where it's like, you 
purchase one and then they donate one to somebody who like needs it, whatever that means. Um, and then from that, like the difference is that like infection occurred for a lot of people that like used menstrual cups, but didn't have a way to like clean them in the way that they were designed to be cleaned. And I think it just brings up this further conversation and issue of menstrual equity practices like, okay, but who are we creating access for? Yeah, that's a really good point. I was going to say also when you were talking about like the bulk buying thing, so people can actually like have menstrual products when they're out of school. I think that's also like so important because like I've also seen a lot of things of like people wearing pads or tampons for a lot longer than they really should. And that obviously can increase like the likelihood of like infection or like UTI like yeast infections and stuff like that, as well as like in rare cases, like toxic shock syndrome. Um, So I think it's really important what you're doing to like actually make sure people have access to things like the overnight ones and just to be able to like change their pad when they get home and like have the resources there to like actually be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I know you can't see my face right now, but I'm smiling so hard. Not at the like <laughs> fact that this happens, but because I just found data and I'll have to send it to you. Um, in the 2021 state of the period, which is the report that we talked about earlier, it was revealed that 51% of participants wore products for longer than recommended. And that's like 51% of those thousand menstruating students aged 13 mm-hmm. to 19 that were surveyed. That is a huge number, which totally leads into what you were saying of these increased kind of like health and actual hygiene issues um, around increased risk of infection, different things that can happen when um, menstrual products are scarce. Mm -hmm. So our next question was, why is it important that menstruation be seen in a more inclusive lens? I feel like we've kind of covered that, but if you have anything more you want to say about it, we could ask the question. Um, I don't think so. What I have in my notes is just that reiteration of like menstruation is not a one size fits all experience. And like many people more eloquent (laughs) and educated (laughs) than me have said, um, like when you destigmatize menstruation and uh, make it managing it more accessible for everyone, like everyone wins. There are no Mm -hmm. downsides to it. So it's important that the field moves in that way. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think and it's a lot of the stuff that we talk about in terms of like um, making it easier for trans people to access different things, whether it's like sexual health testing or condoms or anything like it generally does just make things better for everyone. Like, obviously, it's important because, you know, we need to support the trans community and all this stuff. But like, it is also just generally pretty pretty good all around <laughs> like it, it's there's not really a lot of downsides to kind of any of the you know the policy changes or the changes in marketing or anything like that mm-hmm. um but yeah people are still a bit hesitant to do some of that stuff anyway but yeah it's like i remember my supervisor like said an example because like she got real mad about like some quote that like someone in like my dissertation had said that someone else had said to them like something really like transphobic and then she just started going off being like just because someone's getting a piece of pie doesn't mean they're taking away your piece of pie <laughs> like, everyone can yeah. have some pie and i was like so true Lesty. <laughs> it's very that that's a fun mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. no that is so true so this is kind of random but i was just like thinking about it where i don't know how I know it's definitely, like, moved into America, but, like, that kind of gender-critical, like, tough, like, trans-exclusive, radical feminist movement and stuff, they have a very big kind of focus on kind of this rhetoric of, like, uterus equals, like, woman kind of a thing, which me and my mom always make fun of because it's like my mom's had a hysterectomy and she identifies as a woman. I have a uterus. I don't <laughs> identify as a woman. And we're just like, so in their logic, I'm the woman here, but okay. Um, 
<laughs> so I don't agree with it, obviously. But like, do you think that kind of thinking that's especially coming around at the moment, like there's a big resurgence of it, I think, I guess, has it had any kind of an impact on menstrual equality efforts and stuff like that? This is such a great question. And also your mom sounds very cool. <laughs> She's very cool. She's very anti-capitalist. So Good. Love oh, that. that's wonderful. <laughs> your mom sounds awesome. Um, but thank you so much for asking this question because yes, absolutely. I think even just in terms of like what you had mentioned of this rhetoric around uterus equaling women has like, uh, once again, bled over into like uh language that's used around menstrual equity practices. Um, and I think mm -hmm. language is such the the building block of anything. Language is power. And so one huge critique that I have of the menstrual equity movement is that like programmers are really married to the term like female bodied, <laughs> like mm -hmm. regardless of gender yeah. orientation. Like in a lot of research I've come across as well as just in other people who are, you know, trying to do the good thing of promoting access to menstrual products, like they really tend to use the yeah, that term like female bodied or to really only focus on like sex assigned at birth. Um, and in my experience, kind of many people that are in positions of financial power, at least like to be donors and that have that desire to support menstrual equity practices, like also identify, like, at least in my experience, and this isn't to say this for everyone, but like the people I've come in contact with are cisgender women and only view access through that lens. And so mm -hmm. like, it's not that, maybe they know that they're upholding this idea of uterus equals woman, but they are through how they donate mm -hmm. um, and how they kind of like promote access to products. And I think too, like, oh gosh, it's so hard because I feel like menstruation and menstrual equity has so much danger of being turfy. Like it already mm -hmm. is in some spaces. And so it's really interesting, like being in that space and trying to like unwork that when like, even the the research that exists and that is broadly used by like I, I don't know my project and many others like the data and sampling pools really only focus on women they don't specify whether it's like cis women or or not or people that menstruate as a whole like that's just the language that's used um so it's like okay we surveyed like this many women and we found this and it's really valuable data and also like yes it, we can use that and that's important um but how much more robust would your data be if you looked at experiences of all people that menstruate or if you specified whether that was included in your research or not? I think right now there are kind of like what we talked about, a lot of people that are wanting to contribute to this field in a really meaningful way, but are going about it in a way that only centers the experiences of cis women. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's like, I feel like that's like a really big problem and just like research, like human population research and like psychology and like stuff like that in general it's just like this idea of just like oh well like we couldn't find any like without making any kind of effort i think mm -hmm. a lot of the time yeah. a lot of people don't want to make the effort to actually try and like seek out these groups and like ask them their experiences they usually are just kind of like oh we'll just go for the major like the majority group because it's easier and i'm like okay but like are you bringing anything like that new to the table then mm -hmm. and like you're completely missing out like a population that really do need these resources especially because like a lot of trans um and non-binary people there's like a lot of research about them having like lower socioeconomical status and stuff mm -hmm. like that or less access to all of these things it's like people need access to those things because of like 
discrimination and like employment mm-hmm. discrimination and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't know. God, that's such a good point. It all totally plays into each other. Um, and I think like uh, food insecurity is a st- like a, a field or statistics around that are typically coupled with like menstrual inequity. Cause I feel like research around menstrual inequity has like, is relatively recent. It's really exploded since 2015. But um, yeah, there's so much data that supports that. Uh, like, I, I don't even know, like I work with college students specifically. So like those students, it's been shown that they experience or people that are in university settings, like are more susceptible to experiencing food insecurity. And then when you couple mm-hmm. that with like the intersection of like gender identity and race and class status, like it's so interesting because I feel like menstruation and access to menstrual products does play like a really critical role in that. But um, I don't know, it's, it's not reflected that way. I feel like in a lot of common practices and research. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So much of that stuff comes up in terms of like, you know, they're looking at like marginalized groups and all this stuff and health inequalities. And there's lots of research on that. But then it's like, once we're trying to actually figure out what to do with that, it's like these people aren't included anymore. Like it goes back to just focusing on, you know, the groups that we have the most research on and, you know, the kind of groups that are most visible in the media and all that stuff. But like we know that people are out there and people need help. And it's, yeah, it's a bit frustrating sometimes to see that. Yeah, totally. That's such a great point. And something that I really struggle with in like my own programming and with Project Me as it's grown is like the, just the, there's on the one hand, like so incredible to be creating access for like students and people in my community. And on the other hand, like a critique I feel like that I've been kind of engaging with in free menstrual product programs in university settings in general is like, well then, how does that inadvertently reinforce this idea that like resources are only available to those who are educated? Not mm-hmm. in so many words mm-hmm. or in kind of like black and white terms, but like, I don't know, like how does only having access to menstrual products in university settings and not to like the middle school across the street or people who are walking along campus that maybe don't go there, but are still part of the community. Like what message does that send? You know, like what does that reinforce? And so I think that um, it's hard because universities have typically like the most ability to implement like free health programs and, and resource programs and whatnot as a compared to like middle schools and other community spaces. Cause I feel like they're kind of more of their own little bubble. Like they kind of adhere to their own policies. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like, it's complicated. Like it just brings back to who's getting access to this and who's not. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. I haven't even I didn't even consider that. Yeah, I feel like it's it's something I've definitely seen in my own work as well, whether it be like research or like access to testing and stuff like that. And it's like yeah. it is just people at universities, like it it's easier to get the word out, you know, because there's like a centralized thing that, you know, people will be paying attention to either like the notice boards on their dorm or like there's like a university Facebook group that everyone gets information from. And it's like, there are ways to reach people that like we know consistently, like if I post about a survey in this, you know, LGBT group on Facebook for students or whatever, like you're going to get people noticing it. You're going to get people engaging. Whereas if you're not connected with a different community, because that's the whole thing when you talk about like, you know, sort of quote, hard to reach groups is that like, they're hard to reach because you're not actually ingrained within their community and you don't have that trust built up yet. Whereas with Mm -hmm. universities, there's that kind of ingrained, like, I don't know, like students are used to people asking them to do surveys and used to, you know, having all these different opportunities. But like, you're so right that even if you live in the same town as a university, 
but you don't go there, like you're not going to be getting all these great resources that are available. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard because it's like, on the one hand, like the funding for things like, thank you so much for bringing that up about like text, like texting, testing, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like testing and other like resources that may be available for university students, like by the university, because maybe for whatever, like maybe there's data around like university students, like having higher rates of of something like wanting Mm. to ensure there's additional testing, but like yes, I feel like universities and campuses can be kind of like microcosms, I guess, of like the the larger community that they're in, but also like, it's so different. And, and yeah, what does it mean to have resources for this one group or like to have to show your student ID to be able to access this resource? And then like, I don't know, like an eighth grader who lives across the street can't, or like hmm. just a community member in general can't access this. Like what message does that send? Um, and how does that inadvertently hold up the system where it's like, yeah, only folks who have this can, or like have this connection, I guess, can then also get access to these resources. Um, and it's interesting, like you mentioned too, about like wanting to go into community spaces and to like reach like quote unquote, like hard to reach groups, like through surveys and whatnot. Um, but I think you're right. Like it's hard cause it takes like time and trust and effort and like mm. truly wanting to be in the space and help. Um, and I think like a lot of health programming timelines exist around like, okay, collect the data, implement it, do it in two months. Mm, yeah. Just, and trust yeah. building takes so much longer. Um, so I think it's, it's hard because issues like we're talking about like menstruation, sexual health policies, other things like those are stigmatized topics. It takes more time to build trust and to learn about what that looks like for different communities. Um, Cause you know, there, no community is the same. Like where I live right now, you know, our populations look different than where you're at. Like our needs look different than yours, you know, and, and that's just part of it of trying to create access. So I'm always hesitant when like, there's a one size fits all resource because Mm. I'm like, Hmm, there, Mm. this, yes, it's great to create access, but like, is it the access that needs to be created for this group? Yeah, it's like I always see things where it's like um, it's supposed to be very like all encompassing, but it's like a resource that's only like available online, like an online test kit or something. And then I'm like, what about people who don't have very good or like any access to the internet? They're getting completely missed out of it. And if they don't have any access to the internet, it's probably likely that they are struggling and getting access to things like, I don't know, buying condoms or getting the transport to go to an SDI clinic or yes. being able to afford sanit or like period products or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, there's all like these different things that factor into it. And it's like, when I did my master's in health psychology, we'd always come up with like a thing. And then my lecturers would just be like, okay, but what about this? And I was like, oh my God. So like, I can't imagine how frustrating it can be to try and like, figure it out because you want to help everyone but then it's like there are so many logistical things and then you also Mm -hmm. have to think about like cost benefit analysis and all this boring Mm -hmm. shit that you don't want to think about you just want to help them uh (laughs) so it's like it's such Mm -hmm. a difficult topic yeah it's like it's hard as well when this is like almost cultural upheaval that also needs to happen in order for all this stuff to Mm -hmm. like be sustained like you know because it's more than just you know, offering free menstruation products. Like it has to be, you know, we need to talk about it openly. We need to make sure people feel comfortable asking where to get stuff. And it's just like, 
it's hard because one person can't really do all of that stuff. And so, I mean, I think you mentioned Rosie, like it is about kind of making that community of people who all care about the same things, but mm-hmm. um, obviously is, is quite a challenge. Yes, absolutely. I feel like community building is such an essential part of creating overall access to a resource, whatever that may be. Um, I think it's so, I'm so glad that you also brought up that point, like Dan, of going through the logistics of it, like things like cost benefit analysis, at least in the US, like it is so mind boggling to me that so many nonprofits like run as businesses. And so like, Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is like, a lot of times, like, like, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's like this theory, but it's essentially this idea that like all nonprofits work together to like achieve the same goal. But with that idea also comes the the fact that like, okay, then that means one nonprofit might not have as much turnout as another. And so like, they're always in competition with each other, which just kind of like defies the the point of it. So I feel like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really that like go fast, go alone, go far, go together. And at the same time, like, Funding is really only provided to like different nonprofits and community spaces that like show need for this resource, right? And so like mm-hmm. when you work with other spaces to then decrease that need, like maybe you won't get funding because there it, there's you're working with other spaces and like thus you're building your capacity, which is amazing because you're supporting the community. Um, and like, you're working together as a team to address this issue. And everybody brings different perspectives from your like nonprofits, things you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then at the same time, like it's just doesn't make sense with the, the capitalist way, I guess that nonprofits are run because it's like you, it's run like a business where you need clients, which mm-hmm. is so wild. Cause it just defeats itself. So it really brings up that point, Oliver, of like this need for like a systemic upheaval and reexamining of the way that community organizations are run to try to move to a more collective effort, because that's really the only way that this can maintain a, a sustainable way. Like even for project me, like in the university, that's awesome that we exist to provide students with this resource. There are a couple of other community resources that provide free menstrual products to the Northern Colorado area, but we don't work in concert with each other. Um, and I think that it's just because of that idea that like, we kind of are trying to serve the same populations. And so like by working together, we might make each other obsolete. And I don't think we're doing that intentionally, but I think it's just like a broader criticism of the like how nonprofits run in general and like the importance of everybody working together to do the same work because like, I don't know, it's it's just, it's vital. I really think that um, like collectivism, mutual aid and, and working and upheaving these systems is the only way that we'll see ongoing systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Sorry to get on that soapbox. Oh my God. Thank you. For no, I totally. Yeah, oh, no, it was so <laughs> absolutely. It, it's, it's such a, I, I'm definitely completely frustrated with the same things that you've been talking about of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like a competition for funding rather than like, how can we actually help the most people sometimes, you know? And it's not like it's no one's, it's just how the system is set up, which is, yeah, a bit unfortunate sometimes. Yeah, it's like that in like every field. I feel like mm-hmm. each of us in our own like respective fields can feel that exact same frustration yeah. of like, I just want to help people, but I have to beg people for funding <laughs> and like all of this stuff. And it's so frustrating. So to round off, um, I would like to know what do you think, like kind of people who aren't working in your field, like kind of regular old folks like me, like what kind of stuff can we do to kind of help reduce period poverty or stigma? 
great question. I think just connecting back to that like collectivism piece, um, ideally engaging with education around menstruation, like learning what it is, how it can affect people that menstruate. Um, and I feel like regardless of whether you menstruate or not, if you are able to, carrying around a couple of products, like in, in your bag, like in your wallet, if you can, if it'll fit, um, can be helpful because you can always offer it to maybe people you're around that do menstruate. And if they need products, like it can be helpful to know that you're someone who can provide that. Um, and that can kind of facilitate further conversation sometimes. Um, and if you are able to vote for policies that support menstrual equity promotion, um, in Colorado, where I live, menstrual products had been taxed as a luxury good until January, 2022 of this year. Um, and so it took a long time to get that repealed. And I know in Scotland, it's so cool and powerful to see that it's like the first country I think that made free menstrual products, like a requirement in public buildings. Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. that you know, those will continue to get introduced ideally um, in other spaces too. So if you see those pop up and you're able to vote, I think just really trying to to pay attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As I say, that just reminds me how like, because I've been planning how I want my like PhD flat to be and I've already been like, I'm going to have like a little, I don't know, like a little cubby or something that I can just put all my other random like toiletry shit in and then I'll also just like have period things for people if they come over and like anything happens it's like i don't need them but it's like someone might and i think it's like really important for like that could just be another thing that people do because it's like you could have a guest over like sleeping over or something and suddenly their period starts and it's like the middle of the night like no shops are open um and that's just a good way of just being like hey here's a pad or a tampon or whatever you need um yeah yeah Absolutely. Um, and something too that I've started to do is if you have like the the finances to be able to do this, I like make these little Ziploc bags of like products, I guess, and then I'll keep them in my car. And if I'm driving around, there's like a, a pretty high like houseless population by where I live. So like, I'll just, if I see someone who like is, I don't know, maybe like asking for something, I'll just like hand them a bag of products or something. Cause that's, I think a, a really important piece that can get left out of the conversation around needed resources for people that are experiencing houselessness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That's so important. Yeah. yeah, those would be my suggestions. Uh, voting, if you can, engaging in conversations around menstruation, and then um, promoting access to resources in whatever ways you can, even if it's uh, looking for local agencies in your area and knowing the names of them so you can refer other people to them or yourself. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But yeah, other than that, I think the only, we didn't really cover any like future goals you have. So if you have anything you want to say around either like your own goals for this field or like, I guess what you would like to see in the field in the future, we can talk through that, but like no, no pressure to. Okay. Sounds good. I would love to know your all's thoughts around (laughs) this field and future practices. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Thank you both so much for listening. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I would love to kind of turn that conversation around you all and how maybe menstruation can play a role in whatever, uh, or not menstruation, but you know what I mean, <laughs> menstrual equity <laughs> practices and policies can play a role in your future endeavors. That's a really good question. Mm. You've turned it back That's around to us. We're being interviewed <laughs> <Yeah>. now. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I can, so I can go first. Um, I, this is in terms of kind of that, I guess, societal cultural shift that we had been talking about less like my own personal future, but, um, like so much of it is about education for me. Like, I think, um, I've had some experience like 
teaching sex ed and stuff like that in schools and like it really does start so young like these stigmas that people are learning and the jokes that they're making like it starts like as a kid like you learn like the first time you learn about menstruation i mean we probably started learning about it when we were like nine or ten maybe i don't know and like my my takeaways of rosie you'll probably remember this as well is that like me and rosie have known each other since we were like nine or something probably <laughs> which so is wild great. um yeah um but but yeah like i i remember our little like puberty class it was like one oh day God. a year and they sat us down they taught us about puberty and menstruation and all this stuff and all i remember is sitting there and seeing the boys playing outside at recess after like a half an hour because they'd pretty much taught them about like you're gonna start sweating and get body hair soon okay bye and like they could go out and like enjoy recess and we were sat in there learning about menstruation in a way that was like not very uplifting not very kind of empowering just very i don't know like it didn't really make me feel like this was something that would be okay to talk about you know it wasn't like a non-judgmental thing at all yeah i feel like the exact same thing happened with mine when we had our like little first like sex education things that like split everyone into two different groups so like people who would menstruate learned about it and then like the other people just like didn't Mm -hmm. i was like okay (laughs) yeah it's how does that help anyone i know that's like one of my biggest pet peeves is that separating it out by by you know sex in terms of sex education but um so i guess something that i would hope to see for the future and you know if i can have a role in this that would be great you know is like actually being able to teach people about menstruation in a way that doesn't just center cis women in a way that is inclusive to people of all genders and also just like i don't know a bit more fun and a bit more kind of open and just kind of letting people know that like this is something that is very natural and happens to a lot of people it's something you can talk about it's not something you have to hide um and so i guess like i don't know i think that would be a big hope is that we're starting at young and that you know kids are learning that it's something that's okay to talk about yeah yeah Thank you so much for sharing. Um, my only other kind of thought, and it came up kind of when you were talking about what can people outside of the field do to help, you know, reduce any kind of menstruation stigma. Um, and kind of like, I don't know, like if you were in the position to av- advocate for some of the things we've talked about, like free menstrual products, you know, bins and all of the toilets, regardless of gender and stuff like that. Like if the place you work at doesn't have these things and you feel comfortable enough to ask for them. Like, I think that is a really good way to kind of bring that into your workplace culture because so many places just don't really think about it and no one really asks. So it's like, it doesn't really change versus like, if you can be the person who, you know, at least starts that motion, I think that can be really useful. And I think, you know, that's something that I will, I will try to do if I'm in that position, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like, um, when I first started sixth form, so when I was like 16, I went to a new school from the one that I went to high school and then I was literally just there like straight up like do y'all have gender neutral toilets they were like no but they were like but we can make one because we have like a random toilet that's by like the uh science block and it's like a single cubicle kind of a thing like it's just one room and we can easily just turn that into a gender neutral toilet and you can use that and I was like oh my god thank you (laughs) so just like being able to ask for like a little thing like that like because it also had like a little bin in it and stuff like it was anyone could use it if they wanted to and i think little things like that are so important i'm trying to think what my future things are i'm still trying to mull it over but i'm 
very academic based. Like I want to work in academia for as long as I can, I guess. Um, but I would really like to be able to do what some of my like lecturers and stuff have done where they work like kind of hand in hand with like the local sex education, or, like uh, sexual health clinics and stuff around our area. Um, and being able to kind of be a trans voice to kind of like a trans academic voice to be able to bring in research and like stuff like that to be like, Hey, you should be doing X, Y, and Z to make things more inclusive, including mm. with like kind of menstrual stuff. Cause like, this is going to be like post PhD. Cause there isn't, unless someone brings it up, I don't think there's really going to be anything to do with menstruation in my PhD, unfortunately. Um, but like afterwards it could be like a really interesting thing to be able to actually like kind of help because i don't know what the kind of current state of all of this is like in the uk especially for trans people mm -hmm. i know it can definitely be difficult and like especially with the kind of weird tough shit that's going on at the moment yeah um i'm trying to think if there's anything else i don't know because i think like when i start my phd and i have actually got some kind of a proper income um, I know like one of my own personal things, like once I've bought all my furniture and stuff and I've got some like kind of disposable income, I want to like hold myself accountable to be like, to, um, kind of donate to people's like mutual aid things or their, like GoFundMes or whatever it is that I can find. And I think like maybe being able to find some like really good like charities or something that do like menstrual equality stuff in the UK or like wherever could be a really interesting thing that i could do but i don't know i'm just figuring out but that's all i can think of at the moment yes oh my gosh well thank you so much for sharing i love what you all brought up of um like if you are comfortable advocating for like in a workplace or a, a classroom setting or wherever it is that you may be um trying to like i don't know like use your voice like to advocate mm -hmm. for inclusive menstrual equity practices um and kind of using it that way. That's such a great point. And I think too, like, uh, it, there are ways to promote menstrual equity without, like you had mentioned, um, you know, like wanting to have like a spot in your apartment that has, um, like free products or something for people who come over or spending the night. I think that that's such an incredible and good and subtle way to also promote menstrual equity in your spaces and however you can like if you have the funding to just purchase like a pack of tampons or liners or something and having it in your car i think that that's a really cool and radical way to promote menstrual equity practices as your own like individual mm -hmm. yeah definitely um i mean rosie do you have anything to promote anything to promote you can if you send us social media and all that stuff, we can we can tag you in things if you would like to be tagged. Um, but yeah, do you have anything to, any kind of spiel you want to say at the end? Oh, um, I think just wanting to encourage people to learn about menstrual equity, places that are doing it in your area. Um, just engage with the conversation in whatever ways you can. Um, and then I'll plug Project ME. It's over at the Center for Women's and Gender Equity. So we'll if you if you feel so inclined to check out what we're up to, feel free to follow us on social media. Um, again, my views in this podcast do not reflect their views. It's just where I work at the moment. Um, and in the future, I'm really interested in policy work. And so uh, I feel that, I don't know, kind of tying back to that future endeavors question. Um, I don't know, just engage with policy. Vote if you can, promote menstrual equity however you can. 
Um, and yeah, take care of yourself, take care of your community. Those are really my, my closing notes. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It was so, so wonderful getting to chat with you both. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I really appreciate you. <laughs> it's been our pleasure. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Rosie for being our special guest this episode. Um, we really hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, maybe share it with a friend who might be interested. Uh, as always, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at genderfckpod. Um, there is a link tree in our Instagram bio if you'd like to support the show by donating or if you have any questions for us. We are hoping to do a Q&A episode at some point soon, so we'd love to hear just what you're curious about. Um, and yeah, so anyway, we'll be back with another episode in a couple weeks, so we'll see you then. 